I'm Phil Rickaby, and I've been a writer and performer for almost 30 years. But I've realized that I don't really know as much as I should about the theater scene outside of my particular Toronto bubble. Now, I'm on a quest to learn as much as I can about the theater scene across Canada. So join me as I talk with mainstream theater creators you may have heard of, and indie artists you really should know, as we find out just what it takes to be stage-worthy. If you value the work that I do on Stageworthy, please consider leaving a donation either as a one-time thing or on a recurring monthly basis. Stageworthy is created entirely by me, and I give it to you free of charge with no advertising or other sponsored messages. Your continuing support helps me to cover the cost of producing and distributing the show. Just four people donating $5 a month would help me cover the cost of podcast hosting alone. Help me continue to bring you this podcast. You can find a link to donate in the show notes, which you can find in your podcast app or at the website at stageworthy.ca. Now, on to the show. Adam Francis Prue is a Canadian theatre maker and puppeteer originally from Northern Ontario and now based in Toronto. He is touring two shows to the Canadian Fringe Circuit this summer, his adult show, The Family Grow, A Murder Mystery, and his family-friendly musical, Emilio's A Million Chameleons. Here's our conversation. Adam Francis Peru, thank you so much for joining me. Um, you have a couple of shows that are touring uh, Fringe Festivals uh, this summer. Uh, you've got you've got one for kids and one not so much for kids. You've got or or not at all for kids. Is Family Crow at all for kids or is it? Uh... You no, know, I mean it's funny because when people see puppets, they think it's for kids. So I get the question a lot. You know, can I bring my kid? And I, I mean. My, I'm, you know, maybe I wouldn't be the best parent, but I always have the same answer. It's like, I don't know your kids. You're, you're welcome to bring them. I mean, I don't know what that question means, right? Like none of the crows are gay, if that's <laughs> what you're worried about. But it is about a quintuple homicide. So yeah. you do you. Yeah. Yeah. I remember uh, um, uh, Jillian English used to like, uh, I've seen her react to somebody in a crowd with a kid and be like, I know you brought a child and I want to make sure that you're sure about that. And the person will be like, I'm sure about it. And five minutes into the show, they're like, Whoop, out they go. Cause not, it's not for kids. Um, so you're doing the family crow and you're taking that uh, to a few cities, right? Yes. First uh, in Toronto and then Winnipeg and then Edmonton and between Winnipeg and Edmonton, we're actually at the uh, puppets up festival in Almont, Ontario. Mm-hmm. And those are all, uh, yeah, fun. All the those are all the family crow gigs this summer, and then we're we are doing a big old October tour. It's a murder mystery, right? Family crow, a murder mystery. So it's uh, well suited to sort of spooky Halloween season. So mm-hmm. that'll take up uh, our October. And uh, I think is it Vancouver or Victoria is getting uh, the your uh, children friendly show, A Million Chameleons. Yes, uh, Vancouver Fringe is getting Emilio's A Million Chameleons. Nice. And that is a say that five times fast sort of thing, which I'm sure that you've done by now. 
Oh yeah, I mean, and anybody who's uh, who's um, seen the show, as soon as you say it, this theme song that I wrote with Chris Sujiuchi, it's an earworm. <laughs> I get, I get. We did a big northern tour, and I get emails from people who saw it up there, or the presenters, or whatever, just saying it's still stuck in my head. <laughs> well, how was how was that for you as the person who really has to hear it every night? Yeah, I mean, like. At a certain, you know, having done theme park shows, you know, you're 800 shows in, it all sounds ludicrous. So I, I think I'm desensitized to it. <laughs> it's true. But it is funny what it sort of plays in your head. I've been uh, front of house in theater for a number of musicals. And you get to a point with those where the show is just a constant, constantly running in your head. And you could turn to anybody else who's like front of house and be like, where are you in this show right now? And they could tell you what song they're on. Oh man, I think I'd hate that. I mean, <laughs> there was this this great. I don't remember if it was This American Life or one of the other many podcasts that did something about the closing of Phantom. But one of the musicians who'd been with the show from the beginning, and but she'd never seen the show mm-hmm. in all those years, and then she went out and watched it. And and I, I mean, that sounds first of all doing the show for that many decades sounds horrible. But then to see it and finally go, oh, that's what they're doing. Yeah, that yeah. far in, that sounds wild to me. Well, I mean, I mean, if you're really focused on your job, then you don't need to see the show. But also, kind of weird to not be curious for like, what, 30, 20 years or however long the show ran? Yeah, wasn't it like 30, 30? Yeah, it was 35 years. <laughs> Something wild like that. Yeah. Sounds like torture. Yeah. <laughs> um, so with with a show like let's let's talk about the family crow, which, you know, is a is a triple homicide a fun-filled triple homicide romp with with the uh, with with puppets um tell me about what tell me about that show what's the what's the the fringe pitch for the family crow yeah puppets puns and murder that's what i say it's <laughs> so the idea is you got you got one it's a one puppet show actually and the puppet uh for the bulk of the show sits atop my top hat and it is the narrator it's the detective there to solve the murder that has happened within the family crow and then I, as the sort of like bird stand, play all the other characters. I play uh, the children, the mother, the father. And so he sort of sits up on top of my head and then looks down at me. So the, the conceit is sort of that he's puppeting me, right? Which is sort of flipped on its head from what you usually see in a sort of, I mean, not that there's a ton of puppet murder mysteries, but like usually the, the style would be that the puppeteer is the detective or the narrator and then all the characters are being manipulated. I want right. to flip that. So the puppet is the narrator and I am, you know, I'm sort of his puppet, if that makes sense. What was the, I mean, you've been doing this show for a little while. You just, you did a, a run at, uh, in the fall at the Red Sand Castle. Yeah. Um, but you've been, you know, you've been t- doing this show for a little while. What's, what was the genesis of this show? What was it that, that, that was behind the creation of the family crow? It was, so I was at Winter Mini Fest in Orlando in 20... Hmm, 2017? No, 2018. 2018. So January 2018. And my next, so this was with my old show, Baker's Dozen, 12 Angry Puppets. And so I was doing that show in Orlando. And then my next gig was more Baker's Dozen shows in St. John's. And there was like two weeks in between. And I had the choice of going early to St. John's or staying in Florida in the middle of January. So the choice was clear as far as I'm concerned. So I stayed in Florida after my, um, after my shows. 
And then just, you know, I kind of had nothing to do other than wait and enjoy, you know, the moderate sunshine. And uh, so I just, I had this idea about a murder, murder mystery, right? Because the joke of the show is that a group of crows is called a murder. So it's a murder, murder mystery. And so like kind of, you know, it, it began with the play on words and it began with the title. Um, and uh, I just sort of sat down and wrote this thing for fun, completely for fun. I didn't think a show with one puppet would be enough, you know, enough to to compel an audience for an hour plus. Um, so I wrote it for fun and then I left it. I went and I, you know, went about my life and did other work. And then I came back to it, you know, like a year later and I read it and I was like, that's quite funny. And it doesn't even say, you know, I, I don't know if you've ever written anything and you read it back later and you're like, that doesn't even sound like me. That's not my same two jokes I always use. That's like different jokes. Um, and so I did that and then I started, you know, working on the puppet and then, uh, I was meant to do it in summer 2020. Obviously that didn't happen. So it kind of sat on the shelf for a while. And then last year, yeah, then, uh, Orlando, Montreal, Vancouver, and then that run in Red Sandcastle and up north where I'm from, Sault Ste. Marie, we did some uh, shows up there for the Algoma Fall Festival as well. There is something about a constraint, like like to constrain yourself to one puppet and, and you're forced to to find solutions and, and creative ways around that constraint. Um, you know, as starting out by by thinking like that's, that's just one puppet, that's ridiculous. But, you know, what was the surprise for you as you as you were writing, as, as you were performing it, like at, just through the process? What surprised you most of all? The, you know, the thing that. Uh, so two things like as I worked on it with Byron LaViolette, who's the director of Morrow and Jasp and Pearl Harbor Chautauqua. And I mean, he had the same questions I did. Right. You know, and you know, one of the things we do in the show is I, I run all the lights with my feet, like there's a uh, foot pedals and desk lamps. So that's all the lighting. So we're doing that. We got the puppet and I, I tried really hard to, to think about how to spread out the puppets tricks of which there are not many. Right. So it sits on my top hat for a long time. And then, like halfway through the show, maybe a little less, maybe a third through the show, it comes off my top hat for the first time. And then because, I, because you're being careful with spreading out what it does and what it can do, when it comes off my top hat, the audience goes, oh, which is funny because we just took it off my top hat, right? And the, the surprise was, you know, doing that and then later its wings flap and its mouth moves for the whole time and then uh, you know, but really it doesn't do that much. It does what it has to. You don't, in my opinion, you don't want to build a lot of mechs or tricks into a puppet on stage because then they break. Right. And then, then your show sucks. And so spreading out what it can do over an hour, what was surprising is how much the audience, um, they really, not only did they appreciate that, but when I talk to people after the show, they think the puppet does more than it does. Right. They, their imagination, fills in like all the different articulations it has. Mm -hmm. And, and it, it just, it simply doesn't right. Like mm -hmm. that it's just sort of diligent doling out of its, its abilities. And the other big surprise, which isn't really, I mean, it's moderately puppet related, but nobody recognizes me after the show. I do not wear makeup. <laughs> I do not obscure my face. They look at me for an hour and I had a full conversation with a woman after Orlando Fringe. I was holding an award with my name on it. Yeah. I was wearing a shirt with a crow on it. I was wearing a button with a crow on it. I had my name tag on that said my show title. And she uh, came up to me and she's talking and she said, so what's your show called? And I said, oh, it's it's called The Family Crow. And she said, oh, I saw it twice. I just loved it. <laughs> Great. No, but I love uh, people. 
it's like it's like uh, you know the, the 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 kids who go to to Sesame Street and they only see the puppets. They don't see the friend, even though this person's mouth is moving and all that sort of stuff. It's amazing the things that people uh, uh, don't notice. Um, you were describing like like the way that audiences think the puppet does more than it does. I re- I'm reminded of. Do you know the Wonderheads? Oh yeah, love the Wonderheads. Yeah, the Wonderhead. You know they, the full head uh, mask. Not puppets, but full head mask. Yeah. But when you see a show, you swear that the face changes, that the that something changes in it. But it's a it doesn't. It's it's a it's it's a static mask. So very similar in that in that, you know, the magic of the of the theatrical moment is people filling in the blanks of of what the the mask or the puppet is doing. Yeah, and that's a testament to their talent as performers and uh and they're building right the sculpt on those heads is mm-hmm. incredible yeah um and i think i mean to me it's that like i i often use the phrase like lo-fi charm uh when i'm talking about building and and, and about aesthetic because like to me it's more exciting when the audience has to fill things in with imagination like yeah. there's nothing worse than than a puppet uh, where, you know, there's a blink mechanism built in, but, you know, a blink mechanism in a puppet is usually like your middle fingers like pulling down. And so you get like this blink motion as it's talking and it's like, hey, skip it, skip it. You don't need to blink. You just you, like blink is an extra thing that it doesn't need. No. And, and you know, sometimes. I don't know, like a, a blink mechanism can be great, like, you know, the the design of this puppet or at least the sort of like the vague mechanism of it is based on the Zazu puppet from Lion King. And that puppet does have a blink mechanism, um, you know, which allows it to look surprised and angry and, 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 and that's great. Um, I do not have a puppet team on my shows and I do not Mm -hmm. have multiple puppets. And so like that for me is, is a bridge too far. It's, you know, a phrase I use a lot in rehearsals and in developing a show is, you know, it's a long walk for a ham sandwich. Like, yes, I could make it blink, but is it like, is it going to be that much better? Probably not, right? Yeah, there's there's something about, you know, the the audience filling in the blanks in something is actually ultimately more rewarding yeah. uh, to the audience than to have everything done for them, huge budget of special effects, things like that. That's all well and good, but the visceral feeling they go they leave with when they've done a lot of the work is is far more valuable. 100%. And it's it's the thing that theater can do and arguably puppetry can do better than Netflix is going to do for you. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's the the things you see doing really well in uh, fringe festivals, especially right now are those things that people can't watch at home. You know, the things that like Wonderheads, like puppetry, uh, you know, magic things that are interactive, uh, James and Jamesy's stuff. I listened to your interview with them uh, the other day. It's like, those are the things that are doing well because you can't really replicate that on screen. Well, they're, they're experiences, right? Yeah. They're it's the, and that's what people kind of want. That's what gets people out of their house away from Netflix and prime and Apple TV and crave and all of the services that you could possibly have, you know, you need to, they need something to, to be like, well, so I could stay home and watch something, but you know, what, what about this thing that, that sounds interesting? And they need that now. We can't just die on a stage. There has to be something. I, I I think that's I think that's correct. And I think I wonder how long that'll stay that way. But that's definitely what I'm perceiving. You know, like l- last year at one of the fringes that 
can remain nameless that, you know, a lot of the artists were like, oh, I'm not, you know, I'm not selling and it's not going well. And I was at that particular fringe, I sold out my entire run. Like there wasn't a seat to be had. And so I was kind of like sheepishly like, oh dear, what, what am I doing? Like, is, is my show that much better? I don't think so. Is my marketing that much better? No, we all use the same graphic designer for God's sake. Like, I, I don't think, <laughs> I don't think it's that different, but it is weird. And it is, you know, there's enough like sort of, I hesitate to use the word audience interaction because it's it's not, but like enough relationship with the audience that it is just different, right? It is an experience versus going to a theater museum and watching a thing. Yeah. There is something about the fact that people have spent the last three years or whatever not leaving their house and be very comfortable at home watching all of the things on on TV through the the streaming services and 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 whatnot, and people are still I think you know although people say I want to get out of my house I think that generally in the evening when a lot of theater takes place people are not as excited to leave their house unless there's something to draw them out. Hundred percent. Even so, with our Red Sandcastle run, um, you know it's fun when you self produce. You get stats. I have a business degree. I like numbers and spreadsheets and crap like that. And and we had a 15%, that's one 5% no-show rate. I mean, that's always going to happen to a degree, mm-hmm. but these are people who separated with their money. They parted from their money. Yeah. They, they, they bought the ticket, they made the plan, and then they didn't come. And I mean, that's okay. You know, we get to put other people in the seats and, and, and that's great, but like, um, <laughs> no refunds. Um, but it's... Uh, <laughs> But it, it's like, wow, like the, those are the people who really wanted to come. Right. And I do think everyone's having to work harder now. You know, if those people aren't showing up, like try getting the people who are maybe hesitant to go or or not convinced that they're going to go in the first place. Like it's a it's a it's a it's a challenge, a unique challenge we're in right now, getting people to leave their couches. Yeah, I really think it is. And I think I kind of feel like like as far as um, when we advertise our shows in a lot of cases, um, we don't do a great job. Like I look at some of the some of the, the the big theater companies in Toronto and beyond, and when they talk about this show, they talk about you know the title of the show, who wrote it, who's in it, what's the show about, but not really what your experience is going to be. And if I'm trying to figure out, do I spend twenty dollars or more to go see the show here, or I already paid for Netflix? Like, I know what, I could see a trailer for that. I can't see a trailer for this. I don't know. People choose staying at home uh, when we don't give them that. And I think that we have to, I really think theater needs to to do better and change the way that they, that they talk, the way that they talk about shows. There's got to be a difference between a grant application and a show uh, advertisement copy, right? Absolutely. I, I would even take what you said a step further and say that we have to put theater on our posters. Everything looks the yeah. same now. A movie poster looks like a theater poster looks mm-hmm. like a gum advertisement, right? If people yeah. people who maybe don't go to the theater don't know what they're looking at when they walk by the telephone pole with your poster on it, unless yeah. you put, you know, I uh, for the Red Sand Castle run, I, you know, live theater this October or spooky live theater this October or something so people can go, oh, it's a play. Because right. how, uh, you know, it's obvious to us. It's certainly obvious to me. I'm putting on the play. But like they see a weirdo with a puppet on his head and what what does that tell them? Not enough, right? Like it, we need to tell them this is theater. And then you're quite right. Like go beyond that. Like what is your experience going to be? I 
I get I get scolded sometimes because I'm not so big depending on the city about having my name on the poster because because who cares right like unless they unless that means something like in Toronto or up in the Sioux maybe I'll 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 do that but like elsewhere you know they don't care you have very limited space to tell them what's going on they don't care it's me they care what their experience is going to be so like I try to remove ego from that and say is it useful is it gonna tell people what this is if not get it off the poster make it less cluttered yeah yeah absolutely it's you know you're you're right about about that kind of thing like telling people that it's theater and and and, and giving them a sense of of what the show's going to be like eldritch theater does a great job of that they always have video of the show they always in addition to stuff from behind the scenes but they always have video you can see get a sense of what that what the show might look like what it might feel like and i think that that uh, they they have a lot of success with bringing in an audience, many of whom are not regular theater goers. So I think they do a great job of that. Eight hundred percent, yeah. And I mean, they're they are um, to be commended because they have a very defined aesthetic. Um, unlike, get myself in trouble. Unlike most, right? Like, yeah. You ask me what an Eldritch theater show looks like. Mm. I could draw you a pretty good picture. If you ask me what a show at any of the institutional theaters in Toronto looks like, I couldn't draw you a very clear picture and they would all look very similar, right? Mm. Like, um, and, and that's not to say everyone needs to do work that looks the same all the time, but Eldritch does a great job of, of looking like Eldritch. They have a very, uh, an aesthetic that's theirs and that doesn't work for every theater company. Some theater companies have a broad, a really broad mandate, but. I think it's not just about what, you know, what they do for each show could translate to an individual show, one of those larger theaters, rather than what I feel is is advertising to people who are already going to see your show mm-hmm. or who are likely to see your show, rather than trying to broaden your horizon and bring in people who might be disposed to see your show, but just don't know about it and just don't know that they might like it. Yeah, 100%. Why don't we talk about uh, Emilio's Emilio? I'm going to stumble over that one because I haven't had the same kind of practice. practice. <laughs> Emilio's a million chameleons. Tell me, what, what, is, what is that show like? And what's it about? Aside from the show with the earworm of a theme song. Yeah, it is. It is definitely that. Um, so it came about via Tarragon Theater, uh, their greenhouse uh, festival. So I was an artist in residence there um, for the Greenhouse Festival. <clears throat> I went to them and my pitch was a, a, a paper thin pitch that said I wanted to make a show with that flip sequin fabric. You know, you, you swipe it and it changes colors. And I thought, I think that's a really interesting design tool that I've not seen used in theater at all. And I want to I play with that. I mean, the people who were choosing included Justin Miller, AKA Pearl Harbor and Heather Kaplap. I was talking about sequins and they were a captive audience right out of the gate. And so, you know, fortunately for me, they chose my application and then I went, Oh boy, now I have to do something. Um, and, and really all I had was that limitation. Chameleons sort of came a little later. And then, uh, on, on one of the long drives back from the Sioux, I said, it'd be funny if it was called Amelian chameleons be really funny if it was called Emilio's Emilian Chameleons and like that was it um 
So the idea of the show is it's an old, uh, old timey, like vaudeville circus show. It's a, it's a chameleon cabaret. There's a million chameleons behind the set, this big inflatable set that we have. Um, and, and there's a million chameleons back there. We roll these big dice in the audience and that chooses what act comes next. Um, so, you know, you got plate spinning, you got dancing, you got uh, harmonica playing, like all these acts that the chameleons do. Um, you learn through the course of the show that me, Emilio, I'm also the puppeteer of these chameleon puppets, of course. Um, I am the son of Emilio Sr. He made this show world famous and I'm doing my own kind of poor job of keeping it going. And at a certain point, uh, the set deflates and it reveals that there aren't a billion chameleons back there. It's just me and one of them, Juan. And it's me and Juan and we're just a couple of hucksters doing our best and trying to be like dad was. And, uh, and then in the end, we kind of bolster each other and sing a, a moving duet uh, again, that I wrote with Chris Sujiuchi that teaches us that it's good to be yourself and it's good to let your inner sparkle shine. And then there's a confetti cannon and the show's over. It's great. I mean, if you can't end with a confetti cannon, I mean, you should always, if you can. If you can. I mean, yeah. And, and like, if you really want to not get along with your technician for the first hour of the day, I insist you say, I'm showing up with a confetti cannon. We did, we did shows at the McMichael Gallery, and we're in this gallery with priceless works of art from the Group of Seven, and and uh, we we skipped the confetti cannon that day. Let me I, assure like, you. I understand. I understand skipping the confetti cannon, cannon that day. Um, but I mean, that's like two flip, two sides of a coin, right? If you're walking in, and uh, with if you're walking in with with you know the the family crow, and you're controlling the lights, and you're you know easy time for your house tech um and then absolutely and then to be like oh yeah in my other show i'm making up for the fact that uh, in this show there's a confetti cannon and yeah it's it's true that that show is considerably more tech heavy especially because it's all tracks for the music um but we did knowing that we had that northern tour coming up um we did build it to be able to go you just never know what you're going to walk into, right? Mm-hmm. In these tours. So we built it. So if it's in a gym on the floor with nothing, it had to be able to work. And if it's in a thousand seat theater with all the lights in the world, uh, that has to work too. And we did both of those and it did work. Obviously, I have a preference. but <laughs> There's something about, about the flexibility you need to do, not just any tour, but a fringe tour, especially because... Every city that you go to, you're going to be in a in a different space. Some might be a, a, a room in a library. Some might have might be an actual theater. There's so many differences. Um, as a, as somebody who's been who's who's on who's done the fringe circuit, um, how, how hard was it for you to come to terms with the fact that you're going to have these differences every time you go to a new city? And and how do how hard was it for you to learn to accommodate for that? You know, I it's interesting because I've kind of, with all my shows, I've kind of designed them with that in mind from the get-go, right? Like I've designed for the limitations. And I like that. Like you said, there's something about a limitation that's fun. Um, and so, of course, you still end up in venues where you're like, Oh God, not that limitation, right? Like there's still problems sometimes. Like, so Orlando is an example. Like I, I was quite concerned last year. I was in this venue. Um, it's, it's like a rehearsal hall at the Orlando shakes and, and they set up the audience. So it's like, 
I think like 30 seats on each side of you and then like 20 seats in the middle. So it's mostly people sitting beside you. And I was like, I'm doing puppet theater. This is not going to work. Um, but then I got there and I set up the lights in a semicircle instead of in the straight line like I'd been rehearsing. And it turned into a ghost story, right? Like we're doing ghost stories. And um, and that's how I do the show all the time now because it, it kind of made me go, it works better this way. It's, hmm. you know, theater in the round. I mean, it's not, but, you know, that was kind of a thrust situation and you're just like constantly moving. And mm -hmm. yes, people won't be able to see you sometimes, but that's okay. Like I said, it's one puppet, like keeping, keeping your cards close to your, your chest is okay in that circumstance. Right. So, yeah. So, I mean, the limitations are, are a fun design challenge. I think, you know, one of the things I'm trying to deal with, like, so for this, uh, I've got sitting in my living room, a, a 25 foot backdrop, uh, 25 by 15 foot backdrop, um, that depending on the venue, if it's, it's feasible, it's going to, be hung um this sort of drapey down kind of situation um for the family crow because it's it, it's it's great when you're in these intimate fringe venues and you can have this show that's designed for the, lim the limitations therein but then when you go to the thousand seat theaters which is something that i'm planning for it's like so can you still make that show big right like can, can you can that still fill the space um even though it's the same show have you have you had the opportunity to try that out yet, or what's your what's your feeling on that so far? The backdrop just arrived, so we're gonna try it this summer, maybe at factory. It really depends on like how easy it is to hang things in the fringe venue that's going to allow mm. it. But certainly for the October tour, I mean, the thing is, you know, to make a, an independent tour work, you kind of need to be touring to a certain amount of seats. So while right. we could find seventy seat venues, you know, we're looking more so at like three to five hundred seat venues, mm -hmm. and in that case, they're big theaters, right? They're, they, they've got a lot of space to fill. Um, and so, so yeah, well, we'll see. And I hope it doesn't take away from my, uh, hashtag lo fi charm that I was talking about. <laughs> I'm sure it won't. It's just a backdrop. It's just a backdrop. You get nervous though. You know, I know, I know. Whenever you you add something, it's like, yeah. am I, is this too much? Is this a bridge too far? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I do want to talk about, uh, the show that you just worked on in Sault Ste. Marie, uh, a fairy tale. Tell me about that show. Yeah, so uh, like I mentioned, I'm from Sault Ste. Marie, and um, I was working on this other script a uh, number of years ago that sort of related to the Canada-U.S. border. Uh, for those who don't know, Can uh, Sault Ste. Marie sits on the Canada-U.S. border. Um, the St. Mary's River runs between Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario, and Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan. And so while I was researching this other script, my dad came across a news article that was a sort of remember when that was written by the, the librarians at uh, the Sault Ste. Marie Public Library. And it was the story of a guy named John who was American and a woman named Mary who was Canadian. And they met, they fell in love, they got married, they lived together for a while. And then for a couple of reasons, one day they just weren't allowed to be in each other's countries anymore. So they were stuck. Mary in Canada, John in the States. And they, um, nowadays there's a bridge that runs between the two Sioux's, uh, until, uh, like 1964, 67, something like that. There was a ferry. So this took place in the thirties. They realized a workaround was that they could meet on the ferry. So they finished their work, uh, every night and they'd go get on the ferry and just ride it back and forth, back and forth, uh, all night long until sort of last stops. And then they, they go their separate ways. Um, so this is a true story. As soon as I read it, I was like, well, that that's good for visual storytelling right there. That's just like 
prime. Um, and so, you know, I started applying for funding as we do. And I started doing research with lots of help from the public libraries on, on both sides of the border, the Chippewa County Historical Society, Sault Ste. Marie Museum. Also, I realized that uh, a friend of mine, her grandfather was the captain of the ferry at that time and had all of his log books still with information from those dates, which is so cool. Um, so I started doing the research, uh, the funding came, came through, which I guess is not surprising. It's a very Northern story, right? Like, uh, very Sault Ste. Marie specific. And I'm not sure how many sort of like historically accurate, uh, puppet theater show applications they have coming through the Ontario Arts Council on any given day. Um, but, uh, it just, uh, it, it seemed to capture the attention. And so we did it in May. Um, I've been sort of working on it for a number of years in terms of sort of writing and, and collaborating with artists and graphic designers. I didn't do much of the building myself this time because it was all two dimensional, like sort of paper puppets. The, uh, the, we had like a cooking show camera that was like from above an overhead camera that looked down and I used newspapers and documents and, and little animated, uh, puppets, uh, characters, uh, photos, things like that to tell the story in a 2d way. And my hands are fully visible. And so the audience got the experience of looking at me doing this and then uh, behind was projected the sort of movie that we were making. Right. Um, and uh, yeah, so we did our shows in the Sioux. We taped the bejesus out of it. We have like eight angles or something. So it's going to be edited into a short um, and uh, we're, you know, figuring out what to do with that short after. Um, but uh, it was it was really fun. Now, as a as a as a relatively new show, uh, there's always a question. You finish a show, you know, it goes well, whatever. You sort of try have to think now. Does this have legs after this initial performance? What's what's your feeling about about fairy tale? Is it does it have legs? Does it have a future uh, on a tour? I th I mean, you know, the 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 producer brain part of me is like. I fit this whole show into an artist portfolio, right? Like compared with Emilio's Emilian Chameleons, which is like a confetti cannon leaking oil everywhere. You know, it's just a nightmare. Um, but uh, yeah, this show is like super small. I And at first I wasn't sure if anybody would care about a Sault Ste. Marie story outside of the Sioux. But I do think there's a sort of universality of the of the story. It is just like a lovely sort of tragic love story. Um, if I were to make it into like a touring fringe show, which I think it, it could be, it would probably be a mix of storytelling and the puppet show, right? Like split it into three acts and tell stories in between just to give people who aren't from the Sioux the context. Um, and, and there are lots of great border stories, right? Like I know a guy in the Sioux who during the pandemic, he was dating a woman from Sioux, Michigan, and he's from Sioux, Ontario, but they couldn't cross the border. So he drove to Toronto, flew to Detroit, took a bus to Sioux, Michigan, and then had to stay for two weeks because of COVID protocols. All to go like a hundred feet. <laughs> so like there's lots of lots of these stories. And I think, you know, COVID has made it particularly uh relevant. Um this, you know, this idea of of borders. Um so I think that's part of why people reacted like the audience reaction was like outsized for what it was. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm like, these are paper dollies. What's happening? Um, but but no, people were people were uh, quite moved by it, I think. Well, I mean, I, even as you're describing just the story to me, I, I find it already moving. So to have it portrayed in some way, I think I think you're right about the the universality of it. Thanks. Yeah, I, I'll, I'll be curious to see sort of, you know, so much of this is just like 
you're kind of throwing crap at the wall and seeing what sticks, right? And so I I will I'm not I'm not I'm certainly not saying no to any further life for this. I'm curious to see what the short looks like and what life that brings. Um but but yeah, I'll I'll be curious to see what attention it gets. And some shows get like lots of attention for development right like i have this one show i've been working on for years and it gets like all the development attention but like production attention no never heard of it (laughs) uh it's funny the way things work out it is um one of the things that i like to talk to people about because i think i feel like everybody has their own story of their their theater origin story that thing that 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 made them want to start doing theater the thing that drew them to it that keeps them going for you, what's what's your story? What is your origin story in the theater? So my dad is a drummer, um, and a very good drummer, and he would drum in pit bands in Sault Ste. Marie in community theater. They were doing a Vita, and my brother had just been born. He's about three years younger. And my mother said, you have to do something with this other child. <laughs> and so um, my dad took me to rehearsal. And one of my earliest memories is sitting on his shoulders in the orchestra pit playing Evita, which if you know Evita, that's no small feat to have a child on your, on your shoulder. That's a lot of seven, eight time to have a toddler on your shoulders. Um, and, and the music director was someone who grew to become my greatest mentor, Susan Barber up in the Sioux. And that was one of my first memories. Then I became interested. So, you know, I, they would take me to see things after that. They took me to see, my dad took me to see Joseph like five times, which is a lot in a community theater run of not many shows. Right. It's just like every night. Okay. We're going again. Um, and, uh, and, and yeah. And so the first thing I did was fiddle around the roof. I was six years old. I sang dreidel, dreidel, dreidel for my audition. And, uh, that was directed by Susan Barber, who I mentioned. And then I just, I kept going. I kept, there have been so many times in my life where I'm like, all right, I'll stop when I get to high school because I should focus on my grades. I'll stop when I get to university because I'm doing the business degree. I'll stop, you know, after university. It just never happened. I just kept um, sort of drawing me back in. Um, And, uh, you know, now I really think of it like a calling, like the priesthood more than a career choice. It's like, there's no getting out of it. This is what I know how to do. Um, It is... You know, not to be woo-woo, but it is sort of the gift I have to give the world, and and so here we are. Now you mentioned you mentioned uh, uh, studying business, and that's the second time you've mentioned you know having a business degree. Um, but you know, I think a lot of times people who go into the theater they don't think of the business aspect, and they certainly haven't studied the business aspect. Um, did you go to theater school, or did you just keep doing theater while you studied business? And and how has that uh, affected or how is that reflected in your theater practice? I mean, it's everything. It's called show business, kids. Um, it. I. I did two degrees. I, so, uh, University of Waterloo, where I went, has a theater program, um, and uh, it's liberal arts. It's not a conservatory program, but they have an honors arts and business program. So, what that looks like is you do your arts and business program, and then you choose a second major. So that could be economics, which falls under arts, which is what most normal people do. I chose theater. I was one of two people who did the sort of theater arts and business hybrid. Uh, I'm very used to being the hippie in the business room. And I'm very used to being the really conservative business one in, a, an, in the hippie room, in the artist room. And I think, 
I think most people who work with me would agree that it is one of my greatest strengths that I'm able to straddle both of those, um, both of those fields. Uh, it, it, you know, and I think a lot of artists think that it, it's not very artful to, to, to think of, think of the business. Um, and I, I couldn't disagree more. Of course, there are, there are ways that business can kill art. Like, don't get me wrong, but we need people to see it. You know, if a tree falls in the woods kind of thing, right? You need people to come and see it. And honestly, I don't think I would have gone far as far down the puppetry path as I have if it, if it hadn't been for the business part of me. That was like, well, how many brown haired actors can there be in Toronto, right? Like I needed something that could go on a poster that would put me 10% ahead of everybody else. And and honestly, the idea of flyering just me was mortifying. But I was like, I could fly her with a puppet, no problem. So so I started writing puppet theater and that's sort of how it all, how it all started. And it is alarming, um, you know, how, 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 how little attention is given in training programs and theater school and, and, and how not just that, but like how, how resistant people are to, to, to thinking about business and, and theater you know, I, I sometimes teach for um, TJ Don, Megan Phillips um, uh, solo show course um, that they do. I teach uh, branding, I think, or, or marketing or something like that. Uh, and it's just a little chat. And it's always TJ always has to preface with like, now, it's not a dirty word to say branding with your show. Like, and that's so surprise. It's so counter to how I think about things. Um, but but whenever he does that, I'm like, oh, yeah, like that this is really weird for, for artists to think about. This is not something everybody does. Well, when I was in theater school, we did a business of acting course, which really talked about like, how do you get auditions? You know, how do you keep your career going and how do you, you know, um, do your taxes? Yeah. You know, things like that. But nobody ever talked about like theater as a bit, like we weren't even talking about the creation of theater when I was in theater school. It was just something you didn't do. Um, which I wish that we'd talked about it then because, you know, all of us have ended up creating our own theater in some way or another. Um, but also, you know, when you see people who understand, say, for example, branding and how to advertise a show, how to create a show, Jillian English, for example, is brilliant at it. Yeah. And I learned so much from her just looking at her posters, talking to her about how she like chooses a show and, and also like all of her, like merch that she has. And, you know, she said if she doesn't know how to, how to pitch a show, how to advertise a show, she doesn't even write it. Like that's where she starts from. And it's so, I love that so much. It's so important. <laughs> and you know, it's funny because being somebody who is a, a member of the media around fringe time, like I will start getting an influx of, 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 of inquiries and press releases two weeks before uh the fringe fest the toronto fringe festival which is far too late i'm a weekly podcast i can only do like yeah. one episode a week but it happens every year um and people don't think enough about about that aspect it's one of the last things that people think um but yourself how, with that business uh, uh uh background um how do you approach say a fringe tour a fringe show from uh from a business aspect uh, uh first uh, before you even get to the to the the production, yeah, I mean, there, it, it, you know, to to take it as far back as I can, like like you said about Jillian, it's like, can I sell this show? Um, 
you know, that, that is an important consideration. And then, and then you produce, and you know, there are different reasons to do fringe. If you just want to go up on stage and spend, spend some audience time, that's totally okay. Right. Like you don't have to do it to, to make a ton of money, but it doesn't hurt to break even. So you could do it again sometime. Right. Um, so thinking about like, do I know how to sell this show? Um, and then, you know, as you're going, one of the most useful tools is, you know, if you do test shows or in your early performances, or even if someone's reading your script for you or something, just saying, what's the show about? Tell me what, how you would describe this to your aunt Mildred. And that is so, that's where I got puppet puppets, puns, and murder. Um, because someone said it's about puppets and puns and murder and stuff. And I was like, great, that's the program copy because it's so immediately clear and, and it's, it's casual, you know, which I can get away with, with, uh, you know, the company and, and show that I have, but, but it's so clear. And so often I, I, I see, you know, fringe copy where you read it and you, you kind of read it three times and you're like, I think that's word salad. I don't even know what that means. Right. And yeah. And, and yeah, so, just, you know, thinking about that, how you're going to describe it. And then as you go, um, you know, keep keeping that in mind every step of the way. And like you said, like it's two weeks before is, is far too late. Like you, you, you need your, you need your photos, you need your graphic mm-hmm. design. That's really hard with the first, first festival with the show because yeah. yeah. you don't have all that stuff. And so that's, you know, part of the journey why I encourage people to not just be like, I'm doing one festival ever with my show. It's like, that's, that's your development festival kind of, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think I I do think that that um, it's a Toronto fringe tends to be people who do who who do the fringe locally, and a lot of people don't tour. Um, but you learn so much. Like if you're just creating a show for Toronto, you can do that. You can say this is a show that Toronto will love. Um, but again, like you couldn't take that that show to Montreal or Winnipeg or Edmonton and expect it to do the same. You need to to learn so much about about. You'll learn so much about your show itself just by taking it to different places. Um, and I think people uh, not thinking about how they're going to pitch the show, even the pitch, like you see people on the first day of the Fringe Festival and they're like, I don't know what my pitch is yet. And you're like, you really need to work on that. Like yeah. <laughs> so many times. Absolutely. And and it's it, that's why I say ask other people, because it is hard to describe your show. You know, you're like, well, you, you know, there's this happens and that happens. But like, yeah, you uh, you're when you're doing a drive by pitch, it really needs to be concise. And you're right about what you say. But, you know, you can't Toronto is unique that way. Toronto Fringe, I think there are a lot of people who just do local shows. And it's funny because I think a lot of the touring artists don't get as much attention here as they do in the other festivals, um, which is funny because often touring artists are the ones who do it for a living and their shows are like have a level of polish that is to be excited about. Um, But yeah, it's and then I see sometimes Toronto artists who just like blown the roof off the place in Toronto and then they show up at another festival and they're like, well, why is no one coming? And it's like, cool, because your cousins aren't here. Yeah. Like you have to you have to you have to market. Right. Yeah. Like, you know, yeah. Facebook posting alone is not is not is not marketing enough when you're in a new city. And it does. It makes you think about like how people uh, accept the information you're giving them and, and, and all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. It's, it's, it's like, I've, you know, I've, I've spoken to artists who are fringe artists, but they don't do Toronto and they don't do Toronto because they've been told by other artists who tour that Toronto's not friendly to, to out of town artists. And it's other that that's what the fringe wants, but the media doesn't give a lot of attention and audience, man, as, as a result, audiences don't give a lot of attention. 
So you'll have a really amazing show that just doesn't get seen. And so why bother? And that's that's to the city's detriment because they're missing out on a lot of great shows because of that. Absolutely. And it's it's uh, honestly, so I love the Toronto Fringe. I have a very good relationship with them. I'm doing it this this year. And, you know, they've been very helpful a number of times with like the uh, recommender grants for theater creators through Ontario Arts Council. So and, uh, you know, Lucy and, and, and the whole gang there, lovely people. My opinion was not very positive of Toronto Fringe. It was my first festival that I ever did. And I like it was a new show. Like I said, development festival. I will never open a show in Toronto again. Let me tell you. I will go to Poughkeepsie before I open a show in Toronto. Um, and but like it, I, I didn't have a great time, right? And then the show was new, and it was my first show. Um, and it wasn't until what was my first festival after that, Montreal, where I went to Montreal and I kind of like did, I'm sure a better version of the show, but like marginally, right? And and then I like started selling out and and winning awards and stuff. And, and then Vancouver happened and the same thing happened. Then Orlando happened and it just went through the roof. And it's, it was like, wait, so in my own city, people don't care. And yet I leave and all of a sudden people care. And, and that has changed for me through the years with Toronto, but it's, it is a different beast. I understand why people are hesitant to try and crack it. Yeah. I mean, absolutely like loving the fringe. It's it's theater Christmas for me. It's like, I love the Toronto fringe. Uh, I spend so much time doing talking to fringe artists. I love promoting it. Um, but again, not it, it's not a, a, a festival that ha- is friendly for failure. It's not an experimenting. It's not like I'm going to try this out. Toronto audiences and Toronto media want it polished and they want it perfect. And so if it's a new show that you've never tried out before and you you might be a little a little iffy about it and it's sort of experimental, it's not the place for it. And you, you know, Montreal is great yeah. for it. A yeah. place like Montreal, they're like, sure, bring us your mess. And by yeah. the time you leave, it's less of a mess because you've had the time to to fix it and clean it. Sex T-Rex will often do that. They'll start in, in Montreal and they learn from each performance and they fix and they do this thing. By the time they leave, they have a polished show, but Montreal is so friendly to it and 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 loves the the gives you the space to fail without punishing you for it. Uh, yeah, I couldn't I couldn't agree more. You know, it's very funny working with Byron, uh, who's the director of Morrow and Jasp. And, you know, when we talk about, you know, Toronto Fringe or just fringes in general, it's like, yeah, I really hate having empty seats, says Adam. And Byron is kind of like, yeah, I don't know what that's like. Like, you know, Morrow and Jasp, they're the golden children. So whenever it's like, yeah, but what if I what if I get a bad review? And he's like, I can't speak to that. And it's like, oh, screw off. <laughs> right. Right. But I mean, even with that, like you can you can have this show that sells out and say Montreal and you can have the show that sells out in Winnipeg. But Calgary hates it like you. Yeah. It's you don't know. And suddenly you're like why did I do well in in Winnipeg and Calgary? I can't get people to come and see my show. It's like every place is different and every place is, is so strange and weird. Strange and weird. And, and like, yeah, I mean, I've never had more different experiences at back-to-back festivals. Like I did going from Orlando where COVID was over on like March 23rd, 2020. And then to Montreal where I'm doing this like very, punny English show 
and and like you know a lot of the audiences french is a first language there and like it's a it's a it's a very english show right like it's wordplay and it's like a lot of obscure words and and so people were listening you know so orlando was raucous and and montreal people were paying attention and and they seemed to like it reviews were good ticket sales were good but it's like is is this what it sounds like when you like it here oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> well it's funny because you know i toured a show that was uh, a play in the style of silent film and you know when you're not talking and you only have like a piano that's that's like do- making the sound it was amazing to to watch an audience like think that they couldn't make noise they couldn't laugh and a lot sometimes we would finish the show and nobody really laughed but you could look at it and you could see they were smiling and then they would applaud like they had a good time but if you had a good laugher then suddenly everybody was like oh yes we can laugh but again when they're listening when they're paying attention things like that sometimes the the laughs just don't don't come and i could definitely see that in montreal yeah yeah i you know it's i sell buttons after my show often and and it's very funny like there's an inverse relationship between how loud the audience is and how many buttons i sell <laughs> like sometimes it's like well that was quiet i don't think they liked it and then i'm like wait i sold out the buttons tonight like <laughs> i and i mean it's also weird you can't i mean it, it's great to take the lessons it's great to 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 think about it and learn and try and figure out why did calgary hate me and winnipeg loved me that's all great but I mean, you can't you can't look too hard under the hood. No, it, I think it's crazy making. Sometimes you just have to accept that this show is not for this city, and they just yeah. there's something about it. It's not their back, and that's and that's fine. You just have to accept that and move on. Because if you if you try to monkey with it and try to make it so that it's it'll work everywhere, it'll work nowhere. Yeah. One of the things I'm yeah, curious it, about. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Well, no, I was just going to say you dilute it, right? Like it, it's what may, you know, like I think of people's, you know, like the, 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 the Merkin sisters or like, you know, any of yeah. Ingrid's shows. It's like, it's so weird. You could leave me alone in a room for 800 years and I'd never come up with anything like yes. that. Right. Yeah. And, and I would like it to stay exactly as it is, please. Oh yeah. 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 No, the Merkin so, sisters is, 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 is one of the weirdest things I've ever seen, but it doesn't surprise me that it's something that, that Ingrid and uh, that Ingrid was part of creating, um, having seen Little Orange Man, which is like very much like was her signature show for so long. It makes sense that this show came from that brain. Absolutely. And I, I feel the same about the sort of, you know, James and Jamesy and, and that gang. I, I had a laugh with Alistair because, you know, their shows are like, uh, I mean, uh, controlled, beautiful chaos, right? And then my shows are like, 12 angry puppets and you know it's like there have to be 12 there are 12 monologues neat and tidy it's a murder mystery and that that happens and then you solve it like my shows are so organized compared to their like beautiful uh, chaos yeah absolutely well the thing that i was going to ask just sort of like as as we draw to a close i know that you know a lot of times you're making your puppets you yeah. are the constructor of your puppets um how did you learn that was that like a, I'm lurk, lurk, finding stuff on YouTube? Was it trial and error? What was your process to becoming a puppet maker? I, yeah, it 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 sprung out of necessity, right? We talked a little about uh, Baker's Dozen, Twelve Angry Puppets, which was my first show. The concept for that was it was sort of a blank face puppet, and I had a briefcase full of noses and eyeballs and lips and things that I would use to make twelve characters, twelve neat and tidy moms. Um, and uh, and so that I mean that's that's hard to explain to anyone. Right. It was just one of those cases where it's like, 
this makes sense in my mind, but it, I certainly don't think, I mean, first of all, at that point, I wouldn't have been able to afford anybody to make it. But second of all, I don't think I'd be able to accurately describe what I'm looking for because I don't quite know. Right. So I just had to start learning. Um, and so I, you know, I kind of got it. We didn't talk about this, but I, I did Avenue Q in Toronto and that's sort of like what really pushed me down the the puppetry path. And so I kind of spent a lot of time with my hand up a puppet's butt and with a close view looking at how they were made. And then uh, there's a wonderful, wonderful builder in Toronto called Andy Hayward. Um, and he he's the, the cleanest builder I know. And he built our second round of Avenue Q puppets for that production. And uh, he was kind enough to give me a pattern. And that was the pattern uh, that I took to make that first puppet. And, and then, yeah, and I, I just, I, I kept going. Um, I did a residency in Australia with a company called the Puppet Smithery to work on my sort of building skills. Um, and uh, sometimes I, you know, I build for other people, for, for, for myself, for TV, for clients who, who just want puppets. And uh, yeah, it's just become a, a little bit of a, a part of what I do. Nice. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. I mean, it's it uh, uh, to me as somebody who grew up with the Muppets, both Sesame Street, the Muppet Show, and beyond. Um, to me, puppets, Muppets, all of those those creations—they're all basically magic. Um, so uh, it, it's always fascinating to hear about somebody who has figured out how to how to create that magical thing. So uh, it's fascinating to me. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's it it makes me it makes me very happy. Like it's it, I I like sort of bringing something into the world like that. And it's funny because I'm not a very good sketcher. So like I like to sketch, but it's just not my skill set. So like I draw these characters and they look kind of crappy, but then I can build them and make them into these beautiful looking puppets and that and that makes me really That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, Adam, thank you so much for talking with me this evening. I really appreciate it. Uh, and I, I can't wait to see your shows at the Fringe Festival. Oh, yeah. Thanks. This was a lot of fun. This has been an episode of Stageworthy. Stageworthy is produced, hosted, and edited by Phil Rickaby. That's me. If you enjoyed this podcast and you listen on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, you can leave a five-star rating. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, you can also leave a review. Those reviews and ratings help new people find the show. If you want to keep up with what's going on with Stageworthy and my other projects, you can subscribe to my newsletter by going to philrickaby.com slash subscribe. And remember, if you want to leave a tip, you'll find a link to the virtual tip jar in the show notes or on the website. You can find Stageworthy on Twitter and Instagram at StageworthyPod, and you can find the website with the complete archive of all episodes at stageworthy.ca. If you want to find me... You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Phil Rickaby. And as I mentioned, my website is philrickaby.com. See you next week for another episode of Stageworthy. Worthy.